0: Hey, welcome to Northview. We're glad you've joined us for our online service. My name is Joshua. I'm the campus pastor in central Abbotsford. And in case you're wondering, that campus is still going. We're still planting a campus in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, The Lord has opened opportunity for gatherings of 50 to come together and and worship him as as a community. So we wanna take advantage of that in our planting of this new campus. So we're gonna start meeting in West Court on Saturday nights at 5.30. We're gonna be doing that through the rest of the summer and Lord willing, by September, we can start gathering in the Efree Church in Central Abbey. Um, and for everyone else, we wanna let you know that services are still going on here at Downs Road and in Mission. You can register for those services online. If you go to our website, there's a blue button right in the middle. It says services on campus, and you can click onto that, scroll down a little bit, click register, and you'll see all the different services going on. And again, if you'd like to join our Central Abbotsford Community Campus Service, uh, you can find the one that particularly says Central Abbotsford, 5.30 p.m. Saturday night, okay? About a month ago, we also started a brand new midweek show called In Good Company. We've been putting it on YouTube and on Vimeo, but it's now being made available as a podcast, so you can find it on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. So uh, we hope that that's been a, a helpful resource for you. We hope you continue to tune in, and now you can listen to it on the go. If you have kids at home, uh, I want to let you know that our our kids' video has already been dropped and we encourage you to watch it as a family. Lord willing, maybe it can spur on some meaningful conversations for you to have together. Finally, let me hand it on to Todd, Frank, and Suzanne. Uh, Let's celebrate the Lord uh, and let's worship him in song.
1: The psalmist writes in Psalm 145, Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. He goes on to instruct us, the church, to meditate on his wonderful works, the Lord's works, and to celebrate his abundant goodness and joyfully sing of his righteousness. Would we do that this morning? Won't you bow your heads and hearts with me as we open in prayer? So, Father, we commend this service to you. Lord, we ask that as we offer our thanksgiving and our praising, God, would you be glorified? Would you be exalted and lifted high? Would you already, at work within our hearts, remind us of the goodness that you have bestowed to us? Remind us of your grace and remind us of all that you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.
2: I cannot see.
0: join Pastor Jesse as he wraps up our sermon series in the book of Esther. If you've got your Bible, would you grab it and turn to Esther chapter 9?
3: All right, so confession, I love a good story. Like whether it's like a movie, Shawshank Redemption, are you kidding me? So good. Or books, well, I don't really read novels, but like stories are great. One of my favorite ways to to share stories or to hear stories is like around the campfire now that it's the summer. Uh, Especially with my in-laws, my goodness, they can tell a good story. I'm pretty sure most of them aren't true um, and I hope they're not listening. But stories are fun and and the reason I think I like them so much is that they have a way of of explaining things or or helping us understand things in in ways that like simple definitions or explanations can't. So if if you've been at Northview for any period of time, you know that, that our preaching team or our teaching team We love to share stories, so we'll we'll illustrate things or or share stories of of historical events or try to bring in uh, different applications so that we would grow and and deepen our understanding of some of these uh, deep and and theological truths. So so let's take an example. Say someone came up to you and they say, hey, I want to know how to understand forgiveness. And so you could go to them and say, oh, okay, so forgiveness is the canceling of a debt. And you would be right, that is a good definition. But let me suggest that telling them a story is way more profound than simply sharing that definition. So for example, if someone asked me what is forgiveness, I would share with them the story of Corrie Tenbu, a remarkable woman. See, Corrie Ten Boom was a survivor of World War II, if you don't know who she was. And she was put into a concentration camp and arrested because her and her family were seeking to provide safety to Jewish people. And so she finds herself in this concentration camp in Ravensbrück, and she tells in her book, The Hiding Place, all kinds of atrocities that happened to her in there. She often talks about uh, the coldness and having to go outside and, and collect firewood, sleeping with fleas and, and on these like, huge pieces of, of kind of platforms of, of plywood with hundreds of other women and sleeping on, on straw. And, and the one thing she highlights a lot is, is just the constant humiliation that she received from the guards, constantly reminding her that she is worthless in the way she was treated. So unfortunately, that story has a, has a sad ending for her sister, Betsy. Betsy passes away in Ravensbrück, and she was imprisoned with Corey Ten Boom. But, but Corey got out, and she got out on, on a technicality. It seems like a, a clerical error, and, and when she got out, she went back to Holland, but eventually made her way back to Germany to preach the good news of Jesus Christ to the people there. In her book, this is what she recalls after sharing the good news of Jesus Christ at a church in Munich. She writes, and that's when I saw him. Working his way forward against the others, one moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat, the next a blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. It Came back with a rush. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. This man standing before me had been a guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp where we were sent. Now he was in front of me, His hand was thrust out. A fine message, Fraulein. How good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, Corey writes, fumbled in my pocket rather than take that hand. He he would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner amongst the thousands of women? But I remember him and that leather crop swinging from his belt. It was the first time since my release that I had been face to face with one of my captors and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrück in your talk, he was saying. I I was a guard in there. No, he he did not remember me. But since that time, he went on, I've become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Fraulein, again the hand came out. Will you? Give me. And I stood there, I whose sins had every day been forgiven, and I could not do it. See, my, my sister had died in that place. Could he erase her slow and terrible death simply by asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed like hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I had ever had to do. For I had to do it. I knew that. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. And still, I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will. And the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so, woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. You see, the current started in my shoulder and raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. For a long moment we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. Stories have a way of bringing about understanding in ways simple definitions or explanations simply can't. See, I think this is why Jesus so often in in his teaching ministry, when confronted with a question or when a curious onlooker would ask him about something, he would often share stories, right? So when someone says, Jesus, who's my neighbor? He doesn't say, anyone in your proximity. No, no, he shares a story about a good Samaritan. Or when he's trying to help people understand what the the kingdom of God is like, he doesn't give them a definition, but he picks up a seed and he says, the kingdom of God is like this mustard seed. Or when people ask him, how many times should I forgive my brother. He goes into a story about an ungrateful servant. Stories have a way of teaching us things, of of bringing understanding in ways that simple definitions can't. This weekend, we find ourselves at the end of a story, a remarkable story. It's the story of of Esther, and we've studied it the past eight weeks, and and I hope you've enjoyed the journey through that. But this brings us to the end. And the story, if you haven't asked the question already, is a weird one to include in Scripture. Right, right. Why do you include, if, if Scripture is supposed to reveal things to us about God, why include a book, a story in the Bible that doesn't mention God's name once? Why include a story with, with the heroes of the story, Esther and Mordecai, who are, seem to be morally compromising? Like, are we supposed to follow them? or Are they, are they good examples? Or are they bad examples? It's also a story that's not really significant historically. So so why include it in the Bible? What does Esther teach us? What what reason might God have to to, to place this crazy story in our Bibles? Let me try to answer that question as we come to the end of our series in Esther by saying this, the, the, the moral of the story, if you will, is simply this, God is at work even when we don't see it. God is at work, even when we don't see it. Uh, I'm not gonna recap the whole story for you. If you wanna binge watch all previous eight sermons, be my guest. But you do need to know this as we come to the end of the story. We're at the end. The, the author has, 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 is going to tell us how this whole thing plays out before the credits start to roll. Last week, Pastor Mark talked about the great reversal of how Haman's evil plan was thwarted and the king has now signed a new edict. Esther and Mordecai have gone from kind of zero to hero. She's the queen and he's getting robes and, and lavished gifts and stuff on him. That's where we are. So chapter 9, verse 1. On the 13th day... Of the twelfth month, the month of Adar, the edict commanded by the king was to be carried out. On this day, the enemy of the Jews had hoped to overpower them. But now the tables were turned and the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. The Jews assembled in their cities, in all the provinces of King Xerxes, to attack those determined to destroy them. No one could stand against them because the people of all the other nationalities were afraid of them. And all the nobles of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and the king's administrators helped the Jews because fear of Mordecai had seized them. Mordecai was prominent in the palace. His reputation spread throughout the provinces, and he became more and more powerful. The Jews struck down all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and they did what they pleased to those who hated them. The reversal is complete. Haman's evil plan that unfolded in chapter 3, if you remember that evil plan? The evil plan was to destroy the Jews, to quote-unquote do with them as they pleased. It was overturned. It was, it was turned completely on its head. And in fact, in chapter 9, what the author points out clearly is that the very opposite actually happened. And if you keep reading, you'll, you'll see in detail just how full and final that reversal was. But one thing I want to point out is this. The evil plan was turned on its head. And, and, and this evil plan was actually used by God to accomplish the salvation of his people. He rescued them from the hands of their enemies. So you've probably watched... A Mystery movie before or, or read some mystery novels when I was a kid growing up read the Hardy Boys and the premise of them is, is quite simple any mystery show or, or whodunit riddle. There's there's often a clue And the clue is is hiding it in plain sight and you might not notice it at first But the key to understanding who the culprit is or, or, or who is behind uh, The certain event or whatever is found in this clue and once it's revealed to you it, it all begins to make sense so let me suggest to you that, that chapter 9 provides a clue that helps us solve the mystery as to where do we find God in the book of Esther. See, God, according to the author, is the one orchestrating the events that lead to the triumph of his people. He's accomplishing their salvation while hiding in plain sight. See, that the phrase in, in verse 1, that the tables were turned, this, this great reversal that takes place, this is God's MO for working out good for his people. He takes evil plans, he takes impossible situations, he takes unlikely characters, and he uses them for the good of his people. This, this truth is, is evident throughout scripture. We often uh, point to, to Joseph when he looks at the evil plans of his brothers, and, and he says, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. And I think in this story, the author is brilliantly highlights that, that behind all the craziness of this story was a God who was meticulously orchestrating all of it. Or, or to put it like this, the real hero of the story of Esther is God, a character who doesn't get a single line in the entire script, but is working things out for the good of his people. So remember, I'm, I'm trying to argue. The moral of this story, the moral of the book of Esther is this. God is at work even when we don't see it. Here's my favorite example of how God works in this way. The year was AD 33 and there was this man named Jesus and the religious leaders couldn't stand him. So they had to come up with an evil plan to get rid of him. And so they thought for a while and eventually they came across this insider. His name was Judas. And this insider was going to help them get close to Jesus. And so he gave them some intel and it turned out that this intel was pretty good. And so they meet him at in the garden where Judas said he was going to be and they arrest him and he goes to the, to the, to the courts and eventually the verdict comes down that he is going to be crucified. This this evil plan is working out really well. And so because that's uh, what's going to happen to to this man, he's going to be crucified. He's handed over to the Romans. And these Roman guards who who can't stand the Jewish people, who have all this pent-up rage and frustration, finally get to take it out on this Jewish man. And the best part about it is that this this very Jewish man claims to be the king of the Jews. So so they put a little crown on his head as he sits there. And and all the people watch. And they mock him. And they put a robe on his shoulders. and, And they bow down before him. And and as they're about to bow down, they look in his face and, and spit in him and say, Oh, hail, King of the Jews. And when they're done humiliating him, they get him to stand up and they put him on a processional through the streets. And they rise him up on a Roman cross where he dies a relatively unspectacular death. I can just imagine being a religious leader at that time and thinking, Man, this plan is working out even better than we had hoped. Like, who in their right mind is going to follow someone who has been humiliated like that? So you sit back and you look at that story and you got to think this. What an overwhelming victory for the bad guys. What an overwhelming victory for the bad guys. Or was it? See, because on the one hand, it certainly looks like evil won the day that day. But on the other hand, we know that this evil plan actually accomplished the salvation of God's people. So was God at work when Jesus hung on that cross? Was God at work when he paraded through the streets and people mocked and jeered him? Was God at work when the soldiers mocked him and placed a crown on his head and put the robe on his shoulders and bowed down? Was God at work when evil was winning the day, when you couldn't see God's fingerprints in any of it. Was God at work? One commentator reflecting on, on this scene from the Gospel of Mark writes, writes this. He says, The soldiers ironically testify to a truth that is quite hidden from them. So powerful is the kingdom of God that it reaches down even into the hate-filled minds and venomous lips of its foes, drawing unwitting testimony from those who look without seeing. God is at work, even when we don't see it. Beginning, I shared a definition of if someone would come up to us and and ask us, how do I understand forgiveness? We said, well, it's like canceling a debt. Let me offer a definition to the question, how are we to understand the way that God works in this world? The definitions from Isaiah 45 or 7, it says this, I, God, form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. If that's the definition to the question of, of how does God work in this world, let me suggest that Esther is the story that brings that definition of God's involvement in the world to life. See, if, if the story of, of Corey Den, Ten Boom brings, brings life to, to our understanding of forgiveness, then the story of Esther brings life to our understanding of how God works in this world. See, that the book of Esther, suggests that that God is at work in every human decision and action to move history to its appointed end. I'm going to say that again. The book of Esther suggests that God is at work in every human decision and action to move history to its appointed end. The the author begins the story uh, with worldly and unreligious people, Xerxes and Vashti. They're throwing some lavish war party, and Vashti refuses to, to obey and, and participate in, in Xerxes' requests. Neither of these people worship God. Neither of them are even aware of, of his involvement at all. And yet, without Xerxes' lust and without his pride and without Vashti's defiance, Esther would never have been able to come to a place for such a time as this. See, think of Esther in, in, in this story. She was born into Yahweh's covenant nation. Her marriage to a pagan king was not the, the choice of some covenant man and, and woman seeking to glorify God in this new union, but was rather the result of Esther winning a sex contest. See, it, it may be difficult for us or, or troubling to think of, of God and, and his providence in such questionable human conduct. And the book of Esther is full of it, but in the mix of, of good and evil within the human heart, God's involvement is nevertheless present God is is apparently orchestrating events which involved him in the decisions of, of Xerxes and Vashti and Esther and Mordecai and even Haman see as Christians I, I think we hear this and we cringe a little bit like how can God be involved in, in those evil plans and and in those the, the lives of those wicked people and using them and not somehow be held responsible for these actions? And couldn't he do it in a, a cleaner, more, more, more simpler way? Couldn't he find other people to use to, to accomplish his purposes? And these are good questions. They are. But I want to point out something. The book of Esther doesn't try to answer them for us. It doesn't. And so I think if we're going to sit at the feet of, of the author of, of this book and of this story, we need to not dismiss this truth by trying to comprehend it. So rather let me show you what this truth, the, the, the fact that, that God's at work even when we don't see it, let me show you what this truth can do in the lives of those who follow Christ. You see, earlier I, I mentioned in, in that story of, of, of Jesus and how the great evil of the day, the great plan by, by the religious leaders and, and the, the, the essentially the, the, the murder of the perfectly moral Jesus Christ, that that evil plan, that that evil didn't win the day that day right right what god what man intended for evil god intended for good so so if god is at work in that story and he clearly was then, then what does that do to believers well let's look at what what happened to the apostles in light of that so peter and john they they've been arrested for for an evening they stand before the council and and they're threatened to say hey, you got to stop preaching this guy's this guy, Jesus, you got to stop talking about him. You're, you're, you're stirring up people. You're claiming he resurrected from the dead. Like It's just got to stop. And, and if you talk about it again, we're going to beat you. And so they're released, and, and they go back to, to, to join the fellow believers. And here's what it says in the book of Acts chapter 4. It says, On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said. You made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by your Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father, David. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus. They made an evil plan. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. So Here the apostles are. They're looking back on the fact that God accomplished the salvation of people like you and me and them through that event, through that evil plan. And what it's doing in them is causing them to be bold. It, it, it stirs in them a boldness. Now, if we think about that for one second, that, that, that God's at work even when we can't see it, even when it looks like, like evil's winning the day, shouldn't that be the response, though? Like, should that not create in us is boldness? If, if God is sovereign over all, if he's at work when we don't see him, then shouldn't that give us great courage and boldness? So when... I don't know, things like global pandemics come or we sense God calling us into impossible situations or when we don't feel like God is present or when we look at the situation happening in our lives and we can't see God's hand at it in any way, Esther speaks into these moments of our lives and calls us to believe that our God is in control even when we can't see it. So here's the question. Do you live like that? Do you live bold? in the face of of great evil? See, I I want to. I want to live like that. I want to be like the the, the Esther in in the story who who looks at the situation before her and says, if I perish, I perish. I want to be like like Mordecai who, who considers everything that's happening and wonders, you know, maybe, just maybe, we're called here for such a time as this. But if I'm honest with myself, I think if we're honest, when the chaos hits and in the face of of great uncertainty, it's so easy to forget. It's so easy to forget when when we don't see God at work that maybe he's not working on our behalf. So how do we live like that? Let's finish. If the moral of the story is that God's at work, even when we don't see it, how do we live like that? Let's finish the story. And I think it provides a very practical way of how we can grow in that. Esther chapter 9, verse 20 is where we'll pick up the story. It says this, Mordecai recorded these events, and he sent letters to all the Jews throughout the provinces of King Xerxes, near and far, to have them celebrate annually the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar, as the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month when the, their sorrows were turned into joy and their mourning into a day of celebration. He wrote them to observe these days as days of feasting and joy and giving presents of food to one another and gifts to the poor. You pick it up in verse 28. These days should be remembered and observed in every generation, by every family, and in every province, and in every city. And these days of Purim should never fail to be celebrated by the Jews, nor should the memory of these days die out among their descendants. So what do you do when you experience great victory in the presence of evil? When, when, a, when an evil plan against you is turned on its head, what do you do? Well, according to this, you establish an annual feast. You celebrate. And on March 5th of this year, Jews all around the world celebrated this festival. Purim. And what, what they would have done is they would have uh, dressed up, the kids probably would have dressed up as their favorite character in this story, so maybe Esther or, or Mordecai, and they would have gathered in families or in synagogues, and they would have read this this story in its entirety. And every time the name uh, Haman was mentioned, they'd all boo, oh, he's the worst. And every time uh, Esther was mentioned or, or Mordecai was mentioned, they'd clap and they'd cheer and they'd eat lots of uh, little food called Haman's ears and it would kind of look like an ear and they put like chocolate in there and, and stuff. They'd also, it was a, a, a very extravagant uh, party and they, they would uh, drink a lot. And they, they, the, the saying is that you're supposed to drink until you can't tell the difference between cursed be Haman and blessed be Mordecai. That is a lot of Coke Zero that they're consuming at these parties. But what was the point of, of this celebration? Well, it's, it's laid out clearly here. So that they would remember the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies. These days should be remembered and observed in every generation by every family. And these days of, of Parim should never fail to be celebrated by Jews, nor should the memory of these days die out among their descendants. See, the purpose of this celebration is to remember that when it doesn't look like God's at work on your behalf, when it doesn't look like, like God, God's around or that he's, he's working in this world, Esther reminds us, the celebration of Perim reminds us that he is, that God is at work. Now, we're not Jewish and we don't celebrate Prim, and I don't even think we're, we're necessarily called to do that, but we are called to be a people of remembrance. See, it, remembrance helps us because it helps us think rightly about our current circumstances. So, for example, in Psalm 103, the psalm writer calls us to not forget all of our benefits. And in that psalm, he lays out just a laundry list of, of all the ways that, that God has benefited him. God gave the the church uh, a meal to celebrate as often as we we gather called communion. And the point of that meal is to what? Well, it's to remember. Do this in remembrance of me. We remember what Christ has accomplished and what he's going to accomplish. One of my favorite examples, though, is is from Deuteronomy chapter 6. And here the, the, the Israelites have just received the Ten Commandments from Moses, um, and, and he's explained the, the Shema to them, the, the hero Israel, our Lord, and, and it goes uh, from there into um, the, the great commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. So these really important commandments, the Ten Commandments and the Shema are given to the, to the, to the Jewish people, to the Israelites. And then it says, in future generations, when, when your son asks, why do we do these things? Why do we follow this God? Like I don't really see him around, what is the purpose of all of this? And Moses says this in Deuteronomy chapter six. In the future, when your son asks you, what is the meaning of the stipulations, decrees, and laws the Lord our God has commanded? Tell him, we were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Before our eyes, the Lord sent signs and wonders, great and terrible, on Egypt and Pharaoh and his whole household. But he brought us out from there to bring us in and give us the land he promised on oath to our ancestors. What Moses is doing here is when when those sons ask, when people ask you, where's God? What's the purpose of all this? Remember. Remember how how our God was faithful. Remember how how he took the evil plans and, and Pharaoh and the oppression of the Egyptians and turned it on his head and accomplished our salvation. I got into ministry hesitantly, I guess you could say. Kind of like Jonah, I guess. Jonah was called by God to go to Nineveh, but he didn't, so he went to Tarshish. I didn't go to Tarshish, but I went to Edmonton, which is kind of similar. But my wife and I found ourselves at a place where we we knew that God was was calling us into ministry. He wanted us to do it, but there was a problem. There were so many good reasons for us not to do it. See, we had just moved and uh, to, a, to a place and just bought our, our, our first house that we could barely afford. So the prospect of, of selling it and, and finding a new one was, didn't seem smart. We just had our, our, our first kid and, and I had a good job. And so I wanted to try to support our family and paid mortgage payments and all that kind of stuff. So going into seminary didn't seem like a smart decision. My wife had just received a job at a local school and we had been praying and thinking a lot about that and God had provided that so saying no to that seemed like it didn't make a lot of sense. We were involved in the church and it just started a community group in this church and there was just countless things that seemed like, you know what God, if you wanted us to do this, why did you make it so, so difficult? Like These are all significant problems. And so we shared this with with some friends, and we wrote down a little prayer request, and and we gave it to them and asked that they would be praying with us through that. And it was maybe five months later that we found ourselves standing in a church about to be installed as as one of the pastors at this church. See, and on that day, our friend, he gave us a picture. And on that picture was that that prayer request. And the prayer request was simple, something like... uh, God help us realize your call in, into ministry, or something like that. But but around that picture was little clippings from his prayer journal of of days where he he prayed for us and and uh, and different just days and, and times uh, where he spent time pleading with the Lord to, to help us. And now fast forward five years from that time, January first of this year, a church called Northview, weird church, ask. What would it look like, you know, to campus pastor ministry, and and there was some opportunity there, and I thought that maybe God could use our our gifts and abilities to do that. And so my wife and I found ourselves at a similar spot, right? God, um, so so this looks like a really good opportunity, and, and it seems like it would be a good fit. But we have three kids now. And trying to sell our, our house in that economy didn't seem like, like, like a good idea. And now we're moving from Alberta to, to BC. And have you seen the house prices in BC? And my wife had had a ton of friends. And, and I think we were doing a decent work at, at this church. And I remember thinking about this and being overwhelmed and stressed and wondering why, why God would be doing this and, and calling us to something like that and sitting in my office and I looked up and there was that picture staring back at me. Calling me to remember how God had been faithful in the past. See, what was interesting about from that point on, we had a a humble confidence about what God was calling us to. See, it wasn't an arrogance knowing that, oh no, we're awesome, we got this. But it was, God has been faithful in the past. Like he's literally brought us through this exact situation before. He's probably going to do it again. And so remembering his faithfulness in the past gave us courage. Remembering that, that there were seasons in our life when it didn't look like God was at work, but he was. Remembering that he was faithful in those times gave us courage and boldness. Chapter 10, verse 3 of, of Esther is, is the last verse. And so let me finish the story of Esther with you. It says, Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Xerxes, preeminent among the Jews, and held in high esteem by his many fellow Jews. Because he worked for the good of his people, and spoke up for the welfare of all the Jews." See, as Jews would gather in the years after Purim was established, they would have remembered Mordecai. They would have venerated him as the amazing hero of the story that he is. And they'd look at each other and like, oh man, isn't isn't it great? that God's at work when we don't see it. And remember how he brought Mordecai and he raised him up and Mordecai saved us from our enemies and God used him and how he was worked for the good of our people and how he cared and spoke up for the welfare of all the Jews. Isn't Mordecai awesome? That's how they would end their celebrations, their readings of this story. Friends, if we're called to be a people of remembrance, If we're called to be a people who who believe that God's at work even when we don't see it, then let me direct your attention to a different hero, but one who who God raised up, one who who God called, actually sent, to save his people, like Mordecai, but in a significantly more profound way. See, I, I don't know where you find yourself right now, but perhaps you're right in the middle of a time where it does not look like God's at work. You can't see his fingerprint or how he's going to bring about any good from the current situation that you're in. Let me encourage you with this. Let's spend a little bit of time remembering that God, through his son, Jesus Christ, accomplished your salvation. Let's remember that that even though we loved, and, and oh, do we love, to sin and to turn our back on God, that he sent Christ To overcome that to overcome our sinful nature and and that this God not only saved us but but he loves us and he calls us into his family and the apostle Paul reminds us that this God loves us so much that there's nothing that can separate us from this love so whatever evil you're facing or or fear or anxiety that that's growing in you right now there's nothing that can separate you from this love maybe we we need to remember more often what God has done how he's been faithful in our lives and what he's going to do in, in his grand plan of, of redemption. My prayer for us as we finish this story, my, my hope is that we would sit at the feet of this author, of this story, and we would accept the fact that God's at work even when we don't see it. And we'd be a people of, of remembrance, that, that we would draw on, on his faithfulness in the past to have great boldness, to have great courage, to do what he's called us to do. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this story and that you sovereignly guided the author, Father, to write and, and how we have a story that doesn't include your name in it and yet it screams of a God who is meticulously orchestrating all the events for the good of his people. Father, I thank you that that is the God we serve, a great and mighty and all-powerful God. And Father, I ask that you would grow us in that faith, that we would be people who who believe that, who, like the apostles, looked upon the fact that you can take all kinds of evil, all all kinds of, of weird situations and failures and dysfunction, Father, and use it for your good and for your glory. Father, I pray this... Summer, that that we as a church, as we gather with our friends and families and sit around campfires and share stories, that we might share stories that remind us of how you've been faithful to us in the past. And God, may that give us an incredible boldness and incredible courage to live in light of the circumstances we find ourselves in. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, Pastor Jesse. What a great conclusion to our
0: series in the book of Esther. Uh, And I want to encourage you all to join us next week as we start a new summer series in the book of Proverbs. And one of the ways that we continue to worship the Lord is through our giving. Uh, We kind of beat this drum every week, but it would be a little strange if we didn't because we want to foster in ourselves a sense that giving is just as natural a way to worship the Lord as singing, as hearing a sermon and responding to it. And so we've got a number of ways for you to give here at Northview. You can give online through our website. You can use the text to give option. There's a number on your screen somewhere. Uh, or if you'd rather, you can drop a check off at our Downs Road campus during our office hours. And now for a quick update from Pastor Jonathan.
4: Thanks, Joshua. On June 30th, our fiscal year ended, and I'm so incredibly blessed to say that we met our giving target for last year. It's not lost on anyone how amazing that is, considering we ended the last fiscal year with four months of a lockdown because of this pandemic. So first and foremost, Thank you for your ongoing support during these uncertain times. Obviously, so much has changed over the past few months, but our mission as a church remains the same. We're still teaching the Word in our weekly ministries and supporting local ministries and missionaries and church plants around the world. We're still developing leaders. This year, we graduated four Immerse students, and we're excited to see where God calls them into future ministry. We'll also be taking in five new students into our Immerse program this fall as Joshua mentioned, we're still planting campuses. And of course, we are still preaching the good news of Jesus. During this time of COVID, we've been able to reach a whole new group of people with these online services. But it's your continued generosity and support that makes this all possible. So thank you.
1: as
2: faith
0: Thanks so much for joining us this week. Let me send us off with a word from the book of Jude. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages now and forevermore. Amen. Have a great week.